1: Thank you, Dr. Miglione, and I wondered if you would read it as it's on there, but it doesn't say son, it says man-cub, because God gave me a man-cub. He is, he is my man-cub. Uh, I invite you to open with me in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of John, chapter 15, and I moved here from Louisiana a little over three years ago to enroll into the Ph.D. program to study under Dr. Morita. I knew him from his time at New Orleans But as I looked into this seminary, I absolutely loved the heartbeat of Southeastern. As I read that their mission is to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission, that was my heart. That's what I want to be a part of, serving God's church and fulfilling God's commission here on earth. And so I'm thankful to be a part of this seminary, and and we're reminded in so many ways of the heart of our Father to reach the nations, all the way down to, as one of my friends put it recently, the Great Commission graffiti that's on the ground. It showed up, I don't know, several months ago, and it says, Go spray paint. It's about time to redo it. It's starting to wear off. The only thing is coming from South Louisiana, Go Tigers, right? We spell that G-E-A-U-X. So I'm wondering why are they misspelling Go everywhere? They always use in the short form. But it is good to be a part of a Great Commission seminary, and it's an honor to be able to stand here and open God's Word with you this morning. As I contemplated what I might share, the Lord spoke to my heart, just encouraged me to share the very thing that He has been bringing me through for the past year. About a year ago last spring, I was in the Middle East in a closed country with Another pastor friend of mine meeting with a mutual friend of ours who was a team leader in that country, and all of his team was being taken out of the country because of the conditions. And we went there as his friends and as pastors just to pray together with him, to encourage him, to help him seek the will of God and discern what God was doing in this dark season. And it was tough. It's always tough when you go on the mission field to minister to those who are, quite frankly, my heroes. Like, what do I have to say to you? I just want to sit and listen to what you have to say to me instead. But something happened while I was there with him. Yeah, it's a dark land. It's depressing, the spiritual forces, you just almost, you sense them in a way that that is just different from the United States of America. But I began to be just discouraged. It seems hopeless, even though I have great hope in the power of the gospel and the power of the spirit who lives inside of us and the power of God's word, I began to be just, just, just a hopelessness came over me. But while I was there, not only was I dealing with the hopelessness of looking at the situation and trying to encourage my friend and draw on the strength of the Lord and the Word of the Lord to provide some encouragement to my brother, also began to look back at what I knew in just a few days I would be going back to as a pastor of a church in rural United States of America. And just the urgency of, you know what, there are eight over eight million people here in this country, and there's only a handful of Christians at all. No church, no gospel presence, and I'm preaching the gospel to people week in and week out that have heard it hundreds and hundreds of times and done nothing with it. And there are churches all around me doing the same thing at the same time. And I just began to become bothered to even come back and, and do the thing that I have been doing. And I wish I could say at that moment that the Lord just refreshed me and I came back. The next Sunday that I had to preach was Easter Sunday and I'm thankful that I, I had such a, just a great message to proclaim and that's what got me and has got me through. But I'm going to tell you that from that point a year ago until just recently, I have been in a a spiritual funk. That hopelessness that grabbed onto me while I was in the Middle East it didn't leave when I got back home. In fact, it grew and it grew worse and I became less content and more and more frustrated both with ministry and then it it trickled into my schoolwork. I began to lose motivation for my studies in the PhD program and it, it certainly has had an effect on my relationship with my wife and my family and it's had a re- an effect all the way down to my own personal relationship with the Lord, and I'm telling you, this year has been a tough time for me, not because of just some external, uh, I can't put my finger on one, one thing that's made it so tough for me, but it's been a, a tough year in ministry to the point where, and I've talked to some, some close friends and brothers in Christ and whom I take, uh, receive great encouragement from, and said, you know what, I don't know if God's called me to be a pastor. I don't know if God's really called me To be a Ph.D. student. Who do I think I am stepping out in these these things that I call a calling? And it's been hard. It's been a hard time for me. In fact, I've heard these statistics, but let me just share a few of them with you. They, They mean something so much more to me right now as a result of the past year of my life than they did before. But the fact that even though our IMB does better than this, the reality across the board in the interna- for international missionaries, 47% of them will not be on the field longer than five years. Why? I'll tell you why. And not just international missionaries, pastors. Pastors, for instance, according to the New York Times, August 1, 2010, the article said members of the clergy now suffer from obesity, hypertension, and depression at rates higher than most Americans. In the last decade, their use of antidepressants has risen while their life expectancy has fallen. Many would change their jobs if they could. Some statistics, 1,500 pastors every month leave the ministry, citing burnout, burnout, or contention their, in their churches as the reason. 80% of pastors and 84% of pastors' wives are discouraged in their current role in ministry. Almost half of all pastors have seriously considered leaving the ministry for good in the past three months. For every 20 pastors who go into ministry, only one retires from ministry. Fifty percent of pastors say that they're unable to meet the demands of their job and are so discouraged that they would leave the ministry if they could, but they have no other way of making a living. Maybe you've heard some of those statistics and facts before. Why is that true? Why would that be the case? Is this not the greatest calling in all of the earth to serve the Lord in whatever capacity he calls and gifts you to do? I mean, isn't that the best thing that you could do? Shouldn't you find the most satisfaction doing the thing that God designed and called you to do? I think that is true. Why then are these statistics so real? Well, I can tell you, some don't know, I don't open up, have not opened up about this to everyone, only a few I've been very close to being one of those statistics, very close. But I'm thankful for God's goodness and his love to me, because in the midst of my spiritual funk, he came and he has spoken to me many times throughout. I mean, there were times where he would just, in different ways, through different people, through different scriptures, he would just come and encourage me. But just about a month ago, I had a mentor come to our church to preach, and he stayed in our home, he and his wife— And as we talked and I shared my heart with him and we spent time praying together and and talking about ministry and our own walk with Jesus, he shared something with me that just struck me as not just a word from him, but a word from God. He said, too often we focus on the wrong end of the branch. And that is precisely what I was doing. I knew, I knew that was an allusion to John chapter 15. I've never preached on John 15. It's a familiar passage. But I knew because of my experience and what the Lord had been speaking to me, and that happened to come right at the time that I got an invitation to preach for chapel. And I knew that God had a word for me that I needed to go to John 15 to receive it, and that I needed to be a steward and share it with you. And so, by God's grace, that's what we'll do today. Look at your copy of God's word, John 15, verse 1. Jesus... Here in the last hours of his life, he is sharing with his disciples, and he says, "'I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. "'Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, "'and every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it may bear more fruit. "'Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. "'Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit.'" may be full, may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. God's word here is so good so good and it clues us in to perhaps the reason for these statistics that i read and definitely the reason for my own spiritual despair and depression that i have been going through for the past year it's because we become so focused primarily on activity for christ instead of abiding in christ in john chapter 15 Jesus gives us a metaphor, particularly in verses 1 through 8, this familiar metaphor to us of Jesus being the vine, us being the branches, and our Father being the vine dresser who prunes the branches so that they can be more fruitful. We know in this passage that we cannot bear fruit, we cannot accomplish anything that will glorify God apart from our vital connection to the vine who is Jesus. These verses, they tell us, yes, about God. It's one of the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. They tell us about the nature of Christ as deity. But they also tell us a lot about what that means for us. The fact that Jesus, when he says, I am the vine, this is also a part of of what is a replacement motif going all the way through the Gospel of John where Jesus is, in this instance, he is the replacement for Israel who is referred to all through the Old Testament as God's vine. He is, he says in verse one, I am the true vine where Israel failed to produce fruit and therefore is gathered up and burned. I am the true vine. Well, any fruit that we bear in this life as a Christian, anything that we produce, anything that we accomplish, will only happen through a vital union with Christ. And we know this. We know this as seminary students. In fact, Jesus is speaking this, this this metaphor. He's speaking to people. Look at verse 4. Who aren't on the outside needing to be connected to the vine. But he's speaking to people who are already vitally connected to the vine. Verse four, he says, "Abide in, or yeah, uh, three, rather, "Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you." And this is an allusion back to something that he already told Peter in John chapter 13. I'm not going to go into that today, but you're already clean. In other words, you've already received the word, you're already benefiting. God's already doing things in your life. I'm telling you to remain. That's what that word abide means. By the way, used 11 times in these verses that we read. read. 11 times right here. He's telling us that we need to abide. We're told in verse 8 that it is through our fruitfulness, bearing fruit, that we prove to be disciples and that our Father is glorified. And so I'm not going to say that fruitfulness In ministry or in your Christian life is unimportant no fruitfulness is important it's the means through which God gets glory in and through us in this world fruitfulness is important but it's the byproduct of a vital relationship with God what does it mean to abide in Christ it's a great question And Jesus is giving us, he gives us the the metaphor in verses 1 through 8, and then he gives us his own commentary, and basically in verses 9 through 17, of what it means to abide in Christ, and we will see that. But this idea of abiding in Christ, what it's referring to, it's interesting, when you think about Jesus, by the way, commanding us, an imperative, commanding us to abide in Christ several times in this passage... Remain in Christ, remain in Christ like there's something that we can do or should do, must do, and that if we don't do it, then we won't remain in Christ. Is that the case? And that'll that'll make you really think about your theology. Jesus, what are you saying here? I don't want my theology to define what what you're saying. I want what you're saying to define my theology, but we need to do this, this carefully. Jesus is speaking of our union with Christ. Union with Christ is is central to our salvation. Jesus is not just a substitute for our sin. Oh, he's so much more than that. We are in Christ. We are united with Christ. In fact, I think it's 226 times the Apostle Paul uses in Christ language in the New Testament. John, in his writings, uses it 26 times, this language of, of being in Christ but the idea of union with Christ entails both what we are positionally in Christ. When we are in Christ, we are no longer sinner. We are, we are redeemed. We are perfect. We are pure. We are righteous. We're united with him in his death. Our old self is crucified. We we're united with him in his resurrection. We are, this is all that we are positionally. But when Jesus is commanding us to abide or remain in Christ, he's not telling us to do anything about what we already are positionally. He's telling us, instructing us to experience what we are positionally, practically. He wants this to be a part of our real experience. He wants us to know him. He wants us to enjoy him. The main idea in all of this fruit, vine uh, talk that Jesus gives us is that abiding in Christ is the only way to have a fruitful Christian life in ministry that glorifies God. Then, how do we abide in Christ? I'm glad you asked. I think in this passage, we see four characteristics of abiding in Christ that really get at what that means. First of all, abiding in Christ requires delighting in the discipline of your Father. In verses 1 and 2, Before Jesus even commands us to abide in him, he informs us that this is going to involve being subject to the pruning of the vine dresser. Now, you could imagine if he's telling you you're a part of this metaphor, the one being pruned, cut on, you could imagine this is not uh, necessarily a fun thing. It is perhaps a painful thing, this idea of being cut upon. But Jesus beforehand, he tells us that that this is... We're going to be disciplined. This speaks of the discipline of the Father, the one who takes away that in our lives that hinders us from being fruitful as we should be. God prunes that away. That's the discipline of the Lord. And you say, okay, well, I get that to abide in Christ, I have to receive God's discipline. But why would you intentionally state the point so far as to say that you have to delight in God's discipline? Well, I admit that I am looking to other places in Scripture to capture that word delight. There are other places in Scripture that talk about how we should respond to the discipline of the Lord. But even within this passage, discipline is a mark of the loving care and nurture of the Father. Notice that the pruning of the branches that do bear fruit is contrasted to what God is doing to those branches that are dead and not bearing any fruit. The ones that he's gathering up, he cuts away, he gathers them up and he burns them as we see in verse 6. It's, a, it's an image of God's loving care and that's something that we should be grateful for. In Hebrews chapter 12, we're told that God disciplines us as sons because he loves us. And so he tells us that what we should do is is lift our, strengthen our weak knees and lift our drooping hands. Like, get with it, enjoy this. James helps us a lot here. He tells us that when we face trials, which God uses certainly to test our faith and certainly to prune us, He tells us in James 1, 2, and 5 that we should count it all joy, my brothers, when we meet various trials, for the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And he goes on to say, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask the Father who gives generously to all without reproach. So he tells us that when we, and he commands us, mind you, that when we're in the midst of trials, the discipline of the Lord, we we should not just begrudgingly walk through it and endure it, but we should rejoice, we should count it all joy as evidence of his love. And if we have a hard time perceiving God's goodness, ask, ask for wisdom and he'll give it to us. Abiding in Christ requires delighting in the discipline of the Father instead of, like a teenager who's receiving the discipline of their parents. They have in that moment the option to receive it, understanding that their parents are saying no or bringing about some disciplinary action because of love, because they want the best for them, and so they submit to it, or as is sometimes unfortunately the case with teenagers, they rebel against the discipline of their parents. And they say, you know what, I'm old enough. I'll go out on my own. Abiding in Christ obviously involves the former, not the latter. But secondly, abiding in Christ demands desperate dependence upon the spirit of Christ. It demands desperate dependence upon the spirit of Christ. Jesus then goes on to give the command to abide in Christ Along with the promise that goes along with it. As we are abiding in Him, He, of course, is simultaneously abiding in us. And because of His life moving through us, He produces fruit through us. And of course, He says in verse 5 without Him, we can do nothing. We can do absolutely nothing. And Jesus, of course, is talking about that the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of those who are his children. He intends, and it's his, his plan, to powerfully work through us to produce fruit in our lives. Both the fruit of, we know, the, the fruit of the Spirit, it's talked about in Galatians, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These are things that the Spirit produces in our life, and everything that God calls us to accomplish must be accomplished in the power of His Spirit. We can't do it apart from Him. This is certainly synonymous when Jesus is telling us, abide in Him and He in us, and talking about His work of producing fruit through us. This is the same idea as the fullness of the Spirit that we're commanded to seek in. The scriptures, for instance, in Ephesians chapter 5, when the Apostle Paul commands us to be being filled with the Holy Spirit. So we're commanded to seek the fullness of God's Spirit. But... And I love the language that Jesus uses here because when we seek the fullness of God's spirit, I mean, people wonder, what is, how do I do that? You look at heroes of the faith and how God mightily used them. And of course, your heart, if you're a child of God, it longs to, be, to glorify God in some sort of way similar to that. But how do we get to that place of such powerful working of the spirit in our life? What a mystery. Well, abiding in Christ is the answer it's the same thing how do we do that how do we obtain the fullness how do we obey that command to be being filled with the Holy Spirit it's passive how do we obey that well in order for us to be filled with the Spirit that that language it means not being like as being filled with a substance it means being under the influence or under the control of the Holy Spirit He's not a substance, He's a person, and it's us to be surrendered to Him. And in order for that to happen, we have to become, we have to come to the end of ourselves and realize what Jesus is saying here, that apart from me, you can do nothing. Brothers and sisters, have you come to the place where you have in all sincerity realized that apart from Jesus Christ, you can do nothing? And I'm not just talking about, are you willing to admit that as part of your theology? What in your life are you doing that if God's hand was not in it, it would absolutely fail? We have to come to the end of ourselves. In fullness of the Spirit, someone said is an easy thing it's an easy thing for God to fill a man. The difficult part is to empty him first. D. L. Moody Famously said, I firmly believe that the moment our hearts are emptied of selfishness and ambition and self-seeking and everything that is contrary to God's law, the Holy Spirit will come and fill every corner of our hearts. But if we're full of pride and conceit, ambition and self-seeking pleasure in the world, there is no room for the Spirit of God. I also believe that many a man is praying to God to fill him when he is full already with something else. Before we pray that God would fill us, I believe we ought to pray that He would empty us. There must be an emptying before there can be a filling. And when the heart is turned upside down and everything that is contrary to God is turned out, then the Spirit will come. Abiding in Christ means being content with letting Him live His life, the life He wants to live through you. This reminds me of a story where God did that once, like He produced fruit in my life that I can take absolutely no credit for. It wasn't because of my preparation, it wasn't because of my my articulation, it wasn't because of anything at all that I did. Several years ago before moving here, I was in a men's basketball league at the YMCA and I was a part of this league because one, I like basketball, it's a great sport, but two, and more importantly, because I wanted to be a witness for Christ, He gave me an opportunity to share the love of Christ with people that I wouldn't ordinarily be able to. The problem is we played on Sunday afternoon. Sunday's a busy day. I was an associate pastor or youth pastor in a church. I taught Sunday school. I was involved in the service. I also had a college Bible study at my house on on Sunday nights. And so had a small window. Well, this particular Sunday, we were playing a game and it was a close game. So you could imagine it was a tense game. Flesh was rising up, even yes and me, uh, because the refs were against us, as of course they always are. I've never heard anybody say we won that game because the refs were in our favor, but you hear a lot of people say we lost that game because of the refs, and that was us in that situation. We lost because of the refs, of course. But then as we are defeated and frustrated because of that, we're leaving, and our point guard on the team, smallest guy in the gym probably, um, was decided to talk trash to the biggest guy on the other team, and there's like this fight breaking out in the parking lot. Oh, and it went into overtime. So I'm running late for my Bible study, fight. And uh, we got that all worked out and I get in my truck and I'm headed home, hot, frustrated, you know, got a Bible study to get to that I probably wasn't fully prepared for yet and still had to cram some things to get ready for that. And I get in my big four-wheel drive Dodge truck and I go to get onto the highway and there is a stop sign in a merge lane on the highway and I'm behind a car. And the car starts to go. I'm turning right. So visualize this with me. The car gets in the merge lane and turns right. So I forget about that car because he's in the merge lane. And I look left and I see that I have a... It's clear for me too. And so I decide to go ahead in that same merge lane and go. The only problem is when I look back right as I'm already going, I take a bite of the back of a little Corolla in my four-wheel drive truck. Frustrated. Bible study to go to. All this. Before I got out of the car... The Lord convicted me of my attitude. He said, stop. You just messed somebody else's day up. You need to be considerate of him before yourself. And so I got out of my car, went and checked on him. It was a man, about mid-40s, his wife and teenage daughter. They were fine. It was minor. But he wanted to call the cops. Of course, we did. We waited over an hour. And finally, he said, you know what? Cops aren't coming. We were out of the city limits, and... They didn't make it. He said, let me just take your information. And, and I assured him I would take care of it. I knew I was at fault and we would, we would settle it. Well, he calls me a few days later. He got a quote and it was about $800 to fix his trunk. And I'm poor. I don't know how I'm going to pay it. I really don't want to submit it to my insurance. I'd rather pay it than my insurance go up. You know, you know how that goes. I said, okay, well, you go ahead and take it wherever you want and I will take care of the bill. Didn't know how, but I was going to take care of that bill. Well, he calls me back the next day. And he says, Michael, you must be a praying man. Caught me off guard. I've not shared with him anything about being in ministry or or gospel presentation or anything like that. I've just tried to serve him. I admitted my fault and tried to be kind and gracious. He says, you must be a praying man. I said, well, yeah, I, I pray. Why do you say that? He said, look, you don't owe me anything. I said, man, I didn't even know to pray for that. Wow. I don't know you anything will explain. He said, you know, they told me $800 and I felt bad for you. Why'd you feel bad for me? I rear-ended you. He said, I felt bad for you. I looked at that dent and I just got to looking at it and I felt like, man, that can't cost $800 to fix. I mean, it was a big dent. The whole back, he had a Corolla, I had a Dodge Ram, four-wheel drive. It was a big dent, but there were no creases in it. There were no scrapes or anything like that. And so he said, you know what, I got under there, and I just started pushing on it, played around with it for about 30 minutes, and it just popped out, and you can't see a thing. I said, man, praise the Lord. <laughs> but you know, I just didn't feel like that was, it was over there. I said, well, look, Jesse, thank you so much for caring about me. I mean, you didn't have to do that. Can I just show you my appreciation by taking you to lunch or something? found out where he worked, and there's this nice seafood restaurant right by there, Cajuns. We're going to go eat some seafood, of course. And so I treat him to a lunch. And at this lunch, I was able to share the gospel with him. Jesse was a man in his mid-40s, as I already said. He was a Catholic, but he was, didn't have a relationship with God at all. I came from a Catholic background. There was a lot of just connections. I was able to share the gospel with him, and it was a wonderful conversation. God obviously had prepared him. He was ready to receive the gospel. And before our lunch was over, I left him a little Gospel of John with, uh, booklet with the presentation of how to trust Jesus as Lord and Savior. And before I got back to my office at the church that day, I had a phone call, and it was Jesse on the other end, and he was sobbing. He said, Michael, thank you so much. Thank you so much for going out of your way. And sharing this with me and he told me how he wanted to trust in Jesus and he gave his life to the Lord right there over the phone and began to go to church and began to worship Jesus and I'm going to tell you what I can't take any credit for that. That is fruit that God produced, and and I'm not trying to promote some method of evangelism for you, like, hey, rear-end people and then hope that they'll feel sorry for you and then take them to lunch and share the gospel. It's cheaper than paying for the damage. No, that's that's foolish. I mean, like, we can't imagine that. That's just God doing it. And this is what God wants us to do. Just trust him. No matter what circumstance we find ourselves in, no matter how dismal the situation looks, abide in Christ. Let the Spirit produce in your life what He wants to produce in your life. How then can we become sensitive to the Spirit's leadership? Well, I'll tell you. I have to run through this really quickly. How do we become sensitive to the Spirit's leadership? Well, we have to begin learn how to recognize His voice. How do you recognize the voice of the Spirit? Well, how do you become familiar with the voice of anybody? You listen to Him talk. Well, when does the Spirit talk? I tell you, brothers and sisters, the Spirit talks in every one of the words in this book, and the more you're familiar with these words and the Spirit speaking them to your heart and your life, the more you will be able to recognize the Spirit's leadership in your life and the things that are less clear. That's why he says, next, abiding in Christ involves wholehearted devotion to the Word of Christ. In verse 7, he makes the connection, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. He's talking, of course, about learning the word, that we need to spend much time in God's word to the point where it's abiding in us, so much so that it's defining us, it's changing us, who we are, so that when we begin to pray and ask God for things, it happens, not because God has submitted to us, But because our will is becoming so conformed to God's by virtue of his word abiding in us, we're being changed to where when we pray, we pray the will of God. And that's what he says. Abiding in Christ involves wholehearted devotion to the word. And of course, this has to happen by us spending time in the word, not just studying it or reading it, but meditating upon it. Applying it to our lives, like James says, but be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. We also have to live it out. If we're, if we're learning what it says and learning truth, but not applying it, we're deceiving ourselves. God's word must delight us. It must define us. It must direct us. And I wish that we could camp here because there's a whole lot there, but I want us to see the final point to abiding in Christ. It means being transformed by the love of Christ being transformed by the love of Christ. When Jesus goes into his explanation or commentary on this metaphor of the vine, you may notice when you read verses 9 through 17 that the word love pops up so many times. He's going to explain what this vine abiding is all about, abiding in the vine. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. And brothers and sisters, he's telling us the exact same thing that he told us when he says, abide in me as the vine. Abide in my love. What's the point? Well, Jesus is explaining that this metaphor is a picture of our relationship with him, a relationship that is rooted in perfect love. So abiding in this love and having it transform us entails, of course, celebrating the love of Christ for you, that he died for you. That's what he says, greater love has no one than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. In order for us to abide in the love of Christ, we need to take time often to meditate and marvel upon the great thing that God has done for us in Christ, the gospel, Let it grip you. When was the last time you may have been saved for 10, 15, 20 years, when was the last time you were absolutely gripped by the truth of the gospel? Put yourself in a position where you can eliminate distractions and contemplate, meditate upon what God has done for you in Christ and the magnitude of His love. Celebrate this love and as you do, I encourage you also to cultivate a deeper relationship with Christ. Love is repeated seven times in verses 9 through 17. Us abiding in his love as he abides in the Father's love and then his love transforming us to the point where we share that with others. We love other, other people. Have you been, and this is, this is where the Lord really spoke to me, specifically, have you been, in this season of your life, sin- sincerely cultivating a deep relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, we come to seminary and we learn a whole lot about God. Our theology is—we it, 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 you know, develop in our theology, but, you know, it's not necessarily automatic that because we're learning more about God that we are really knowing God better. Let me ask you this, do you love Jesus more today than when you enrolled at Southeastern or when you started teaching theology or missions or preaching or biblical studies? Do you love Jesus more today? And I hope the answer is yes. In order for that to be the case, though, we have to be intentional about cultivating this relationship as we remain experiencing what is true positionally, experiencing it practically. And of course, then we can anticipate the love of Christ flowing through us to others. As I close, I want to just share, just run through them, the benefits that Jesus gives of abiding in Christ. First of all, Fruitfulness. We bear fruit, much fruit. He prunes us so that we bear even more fruit, abundant fruit. We see that in verses 5, verse 2. Several times we see this idea of fruitfulness. Fruitfulness is a benefit of abiding in Christ. Don't try to accomplish things for Jesus. Let him accomplish them through you. Don't focus on the wrong end of the branch. Powerful prayer. He, two times in this passage, in verse 17, 7 and verse 16, he tells us that we can ask whatever we will and it will be done, but this is a result of us abiding in Christ and him transforming us by virtue of our relationship, our connection with him. Only then is that true. So to the extent that we heed Jesus' command to abide in him practically, our prayers will be effective. Fullness of joy, verse 11 And of course, the ultimate goal itself, experiencing a deeper relationship with Jesus. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for this image of the vine. Oh, how I feel like my efforts are inadequate to expose the awesome truth of the gospel, of our union with you, Jesus. But I pray that your spirit would work in our hearts, that you would give us rest. Lord, that you would help us to experience what Jesus said when he said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, for I will give you rest, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Lord, may you lift our burdens as we, instead of focusing on all of our activity for you, We just enjoy abiding in you as your beloved sons and daughters. Help us to do that, I pray, in Jesus' name.
0: Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, We hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for his glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.